You're on Radio 191 FM, 26 past 1, uh, with me, George, on the Tuesday Nooner. Bit of a placeholder name there. Uh, and I'm joined by Olivier Jatel, who um, used to work at Radio 1. What is up, George? How's it going? Not too bad, my man. Uh, and you're at, uh, in Fiji at the moment. Um, that's, that's right. I'm teaching journalism at the University of the South Pacific. South Pacific, yes. Yeah. Uh, and you were at the uh, one of my favorite, I guess, uh, departments at Otago University, the um, Media, Film and Communications Department. You did your doctorate there. Yep. Thesis titled Liberalism and its Populist Excess, Barack Obama, the Tea Party, and the Median... You've been researching, my man. <laughs> That's good, that's good. They teach you well there. Yeah, listen, uh, shout out to all my Mythco uh, colleagues and all the rest of it, of which you are one. Yes. And, um, and it's, it's funny that you bring up uh, the title, you know, liberalism and populism. I've been mm-hmm. looking at that relationship for about five or six years now. And, uh, you know, the big part of my thesis uh, was that liberalism just has a massive blind spot to how politics works. Politics is about emotion, enjoyment antagonism right political identity is is based on being able to say well this is us that's them and uh you know that's that's the basis of of our identity you see this very well at work in you know in trump and populism and make america great and all the rest of it um but a guy like barack obama uh you know phenomenal political talent incredibly charismatic and you know i look americans would vote for him again i'd vote for him again even though so much stuff about you know what he's done that's terrible mm-hmm. and has led to this very situation but Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and the kind of technocratic, rationalistic politics that they represent, they don't understand this fundamental idea of politics and political identity. Antagonism, emotion, so enjoyment. So is, is that populism, that, that, that emotion, that enjoyment, that I've, I've heard you, you uh, on uh, RNZ, I think it was, talking about... Um, Fascism as a as a populist orgy, that kind of well, this is the thing. I mean, sensual stuff. That's that's right. And actually, you know, uh, mass politics has that element, right? Like the camaraderie of thousands of people in the city square, Tahrir Square, Occupy, wherever it may be. And there's like a kind of energy and emotion uh, and a kind of charge of enjoyment, antagonism, and all the rest of it that is the basis of you know of crowds of democracy. And look. The, the debate about what is populism is so incredibly uh, long-winded academic debate. And mm. there are populist elements, you know, almost in every form of politics, right? You know, but um, the key thing there is the notion that your the, the ideal subject of your group is, you know, is the people. And the people are just good and they're, you know, grassroots, salt of the earth, blah, blah, blah. And that's different to traditional left-wing social democratic or socialist politics in which the masses are you know the rash you know self-enlightened kind of uh, rigorous kind of education and in a sense tearing apart the new world the old world to make a new world it's quite an emancipatory revolutionary politics whereas populism is, is more you know I don't New Zealand, not, new Zealand first nationalistic right not always bad not always reactionary, but probably most of the time. Rea- I mean, you know, yeah. I, I have a reasonably dim view of, of populism. Um, and, and it's historically been linked to certain kind of agrarian peasant movements. But it's yeah. basically the people are good. The people don't need to change. What needs to change is the elite. Right. Now, that's very different to a kind of socialist kind of class-based analysis, which says this is the system as it exists. We want to change the system. It's not about 
what's in people's heart and people's kind of nat you know natural morality okay. or something. Yeah, yeah and and, and <laughs> no, that's fine. And and so this this populism is, I mean, what you put down for for Trump winning. Uh, well, listen, things are bad in America, mm -hmm. and the slogan "Make America Great Again." Obviously, whatever that means, and and that's kind of like you know, if if, if we're going to get into like uh, Leclau and the Essex School, that's like an empty signifier that can mean anything, anything right? Yeah. That could be 1950s Leave it, Leave It to Beaver America, or it could you know mean. And, and this is the weird thing, like so much of what the right wing reactionaries in America actually long for is actually the product of like late trade unions and the welfare state and, yeah, and yeah. it's actually the community of like social democracy but America had this weird McCarthyite quasi-McCarthyite labor movement so it gets all kind of confused and mixed up but make America great again is this kind of empty signifier that can mean so much to different people um, but it certainly captures the fact that things are bad things mm. are not good and we know the numbers the 1% the 99% yeah and the key thing I'll just stop there. Is when Hillary Clinton came out with those hats and said, look, America is already great. Mm. I mean, that's just like face palm stuff. Right. No, no, look, you know, that's the complete misreading of of the kind of, you know, the emotion, the sense of, of the electorate. Mm. And I guess Donald Trump himself was an empty signifier. People applied a lot, right. of, a lot of stuff to him. I, I guess that's, you know... <laughs> one of the big reasons why why he was elected. Um, so and since his yeah, and that's a great that's a great point, and I have to jump in there because yeah. I mean that's the thing too is like he's is he a reality TV star? <laughs> yeah. Is this a real campaign? Is this campaign just about leveraging a kind of you know contract negotiation with NBC for The Apprentice? You know, at what stage did he really actually think he wanted to win? And he's toyed with this for years, you know, teasing the Democrat, mm. uh, the Republicans. And, and one of the things that makes Donald Trump appealing, I think, to some people, or at least makes him a perfect vessel for this time, is that he's kind of like, I mean, he's a shit poster, obviously. But he will go wherever that takes him, whether that's steak infomercials, selling ties, leveraging his reality TV as a kind of facade for real estate deal. I mean, like... You know, he's not even... Uh, I mean, is he a real billionaire? I mean, okay, maybe he's worth a billion, maybe well, he's not. Sure. <laughs> but he is the hustle of today's kind of like empty, uh, what Jody Dean calls communicative capitalism, but I'll stop there. <laughs> um, so he's elected now. Uh -huh. And uh, since his election, I mean, it, oh, it can be described as, as chaotic. I mean, it's, yes, it's, it's messy. Uh, there's McCarthyism, as you said, or a neo-McCarthyism within the Democratic Party towards uh, Russian involvement. Um, <clears throat> it seems that, <clears throat> I guess... Should we tease out the Russia thing? Because I think if we get over that too yeah, quickly, some people will think no, I'm like a Putinist or a whatever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, no, let's go there. Yeah, all right. So, okay. First things first, Putin's a bad guy. You know, if you want to call it a kleptocracy or an oligarchy, whatever it is, it's not a, um, it's not uh, an ideal model for anything. And I think so much of what gets said about Russia and Putin is so fabricated and so wrong. And this is something I know that you find terribly annoying: is that a lot of leftists look at Putin and think, "Oh yeah, cool man, <laughs> he really is," you know, doing his, his thing or whatever. And a lot of the kind of crypto community, because of uh, Assange and Snowden, mm -hmm. they kind of. And there's actually there's a New Zealand journalist there right now who's uh, seeking asylum yeah, in Russia. That's a that. fascinating story, but yeah. we should leave that <laughs> yeah. for now. But like, so there's a way in which. 
the hysteria about Russia kind of makes Putin look good. But like, I was talking to um, Dr. Jim Headley, who's at Politics, who's mm. uh, a Russophile, or, you know, that's his area. And he's like, yeah. well, look, if you went to Moscow, it would look like any other kind of neoliberal developing city, whether Mumbai or whatever. I mean, like, it's actually... Uh, by the standards of of what we value in kind of developing world or second world economy, you know, it's it's, it's pretty good. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of crazy stuff going on there about Russia. And um, where does that begin with? Well, I I believe it it fundamentally starts with uh, the Democratic Party, and and I'll say liberal because I call them liberals because that's what their politics represents. Their inability to kind of come to terms with with what happened, uh, both in terms of what happened in the primary with Bernie Sanders yeah. and uh, what happened with Donald Trump in the general election. Now, uh, the Democratic National uh, Committee emails were hacked, um, and they showed uh, Democrats were supposed to be all about process and democracy, because that's mm. their name, <laughs> um, you know, putting their thumb on the scale to or to the point of actually, you know, Jew-baiting Mm. Bernie Sanders in the media. Really egregious, horrific things. And and, and lockstep what happened uh, within the kind of, you know, uh, rank-and-file Democrats, but also certain kind of liberal circles of, of journalism was to say, oh, Russia. Yeah. This is not actually about what's, what's happening to us in our politics and how crooked and rotten they are. This is about Russia. Uh, one guy, Franklin Four, uh, wrote, you know, this is the you know, biggest scandal since Watergate. Okay. Now, what happened also is Hillary Clinton lost an unlosable election through unbelievable incompetence, mm. shocking incompetence. Their uh, strategy for winning Michigan was not going to Michigan yeah. to show Trump how strong they were in Michigan. Turns out they lost in Michigan. Okay. Turns out 90,000 people in Michigan voted but didn't vote for the presidency, obviously out of disgust. Michigan is the birthplace of trade unionism in America. It's not a place Democrats should ever lose. Mm. Same thing in Wisconsin. Bernie Sanders, he would have done anything for the Clinton campaign. He was begging to go to those states where he won, and they wouldn't let him go. Uh, so rather than come to terms with just how disastrously bad they bungled an unlosable election, uh, we had to talk about Putin. Now, uh... You know, Russia and the GRU, they might be very interested in getting some of that information that ended up, you know, uh, coming out through WikiLeaks. Uh, that's ab that's totally possible. Mm. Um, but, but it's beside the point, I guess. It, well, yeah. it's one, you could say is beside the point. And two, what we are left to believe uh, is, you know, concrete evidence of that is the most laughable nonsense ever. Now, we probably shouldn't be in the habit of trusting spooks just at face value willy-nilly, mm. especially when they give us, you know, the RT dossier, the official DNI report. That's the director. <laughs> it's the director of national intelligence. It's a kind of supposed to be the place where all the NSA, all the spooks get together yeah. and give their assessment. And basically it was 25 pages of, oh, RT's got some shows on it that criticize Wall Street <laughs> and say that the two parties don't represent the American people. And then they inflated uh, RT's viewership. They basically said, and this is you know seen by 150 million American households. It's like it's possible to be seen, in a, but you know yeah. it's probably watched by about 20,000 people. Uh, so, and then there was, and and then to say nothing of the piss Trump dossier. But just to put a little bow on it, um, oh yeah, and I, mean, I could talk about the metadata of the hacks that's been used, and they're totally they don't stack up. Uh, but I'll, I will stop there. 
Mm -hmm. will encourage people to read Andrew Coburn in Harper's Magazine and uh, Google the Yandex problem. Um, and also look out for Yasha Levine's work coming out soon on The Baffler. If you want to get into the weeds of, of the metadata of the hacks and why this thing just doesn't quite look right. Mm. It, it, yeah. it, it seems hard, though, because, I mean, it, it, there's just so much information and it, it's just so chaotic and there's so many agendas. It seems really, really hard to, uh, I guess, get through and, and, and figure out what's going on. And, and part of that is the way in which the liberal media rallied around uh, Hillary Clinton and yeah. said, man, we have these spreadsheets which show 97%, you know, uh, probability, you know, this kind of, um, I mean, you know, uh, again, Thomas Frank, uh, the, you know, Thomas Frank, who's a great historian and journalist, uh, he wrote a piece in Harper's about the coverage of Bernie Sanders. And listen, people should know I'm obviously a Sanders partisan. Um, but, you know, the New York Times, they ran one story uh, on Bernie Sanders that was positive, you know, calling him the Amendment King and having a quote from John McCain talking about what he's been able to do in his term of Congress. And obviously David Brock and, uh, anyway, look him up, he's a ghoul. These people called up the New York Times fur furiously and they totally changed the website uh, story of this Bernie Sanders, this one positive Bernie Sanders piece of reporting to make it look you know, all negative, like this is actually why he's terrible and why he can't achieve change or blah, blah, blah. So like, you know, lockstep, incapable, the journalistic class has not, in a sense, poked any holes in, in, you know, Hillary Clinton's inevitability. And now we have this issue with how we're treating Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump is, I mean, he's a fascist, but again, we don't really have paramilitaries as the basis for his power. So while he is a fascist, it's possibly not as scary as you think. I mean, I think the cops, that's, and, you know, that's very scary. Um, but we have liberals kind of really stretching here. And, and we want to talk about fake news and post-truth. Well, look, BuzzFeed and, and some of this Russia coverage has as much to do with that uh, as any of the Breitbart stuff, and any of the Facebook stuff. So, you know, like, uh, we're all implicated. Well, they're all implicated in this. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's about <clears throat> constructing Trump as a uniquely pathological figure. Now, Trump is a sexual predator, uh, probably were. I mean, listen, he's vile, he's disgusting, and all the rest of it. But we, it seems like we're focusing on his unfitness for office at the level of character mm. and just how badly that makes us feel. And, you know, crying about Obama's uh, leaving speech and look, you know, Obama's is, you know, it is. It's always great to say, well, you know, that's our president. You know, what a what a great yeah. guy, what an eloquent guy. But that's not should that should not be the measure of political offices, like how a politician makes you feel about yourself and feel about your country. It's like, you know, what is the substance of the politics that we're actually fighting for? And right now, um, liberals aren't doing that. And it's I'll I'll, look, I'll stop there. I'm sure, I can pick this thread up along. No, speaking of, speaking of liberal, I'm, I guess the, what happens from now is, uh, you know, there's a million op-eds about a changing world order because of Trump and because of right. uh, because of a right-wing populist rise in Europe or, and, you know... Which apparently Russia is singularly responsible for. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And, and again, you know, you got people on MSNBC talking about, like, you know... I, I, look, this is the last thing I'll say about the Russia hysteria. There was an article, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times talking about ever since, you know... Uh, 
the Tsar Nicholas uh, Romanov commissioned the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to through to the Stalinist show trials, through to the yeah. you know common turn. Basically, this notion that Russians have always been sneaky and mm. devious yeah. and untrustworthy and trying to unsettle the world order. This is kind of like Henry Ford's The Universal Jew. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. this is they're responsible for neo Nazis. They're responsible for socialist, you know, dictators. There was, and and they're you know. It's it's kind of a pathology analysis of of what is happening because you know I mean at the risk of sounding like Adam Curtis you know our narratives no longer work <laughs> we live in a destabilized political time no one knows what is happening that's right <laughs> anyway. um, but do you, do you go as far as, as as some of the alarmists on the left go and say that it it all it's all heading to World War Three uh no. Why would I think it was headed to World War Three? No, I mean, listen, I think Trump's M.O. is destabilization, right? And, like, you know, somebody joked about this on Chapo Trap House, which is a great podcast, Matt Chrisman. He said, look, you know, Trump is such a, you know, non-ideological, vain idiot that if you called single-payer health care Trump care, he might just do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, like, I mean, there's a whole bunch of weird stuff going on. Like, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been named oh, the yeah. kind of That's vaccines bizarre. are, yeah. right? And and listen, you know, Chuck Johnson, the disgusting uh, troll, the guy with the smushed face and the glasses and the beard, whatever, look him up. He's kind of like the arch troll. He's Milo before Milo. <laughs> uh, he's kind of like the hacker weave. He's a disgusting. I mean, but this guy is 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 working with the Trump transition team, all right. And um, you know, so they are trolling us in a sense. Yeah. And it's kind of like to keep us kind of topsy turvy and to keep the media cycle, you know, all about liberals being like, oh my God, they're doing this thing and this is unconscionable. And rather than just saying, okay, you know, this is our politics. This is look again. I'm such a Sanders partisan, but what is Bernie Sanders doing right now? And what? what and this is why I think this is very effective. But liberals and the Democrats aren't able to do this because it ha they have to deal with their 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 hand in this. Because what Bernie Sanders is saying, you know, when he's get these big blow up tweets and going into the floor of Congress, he's saying, look, Senator Trump ran saying you would not cut Social Security or Medicare. These are not the problems. Or, mm. you know, you wanted to, you know, have uh, workers, you know, have fair wages and not lose their jobs to free trade and bad trade deals. You know, so he's trying to hold he's trying to split from Trump that kind of patina of left or social democratic politics, yeah, yeah. which obviously Hillary Clinton equated as just as bad as Trump. I mean, you know, because you know, she's a total neoliberal and she doesn't yeah. believe in that stuff. But Bernie Sanders is trying to parse that away from him. So what that does is all those people who are angry and disaffected because they have a reason to be, because, mm. you know, deindustrialization, but also, I mean, you know, Flint, Michigan, or whatever these kinds of crises of, of heartland America uh, but also in, you know, inner cities uh, on the coast as well. He's taken those issues away from Trump. But liberals can't do that because they would have to accept responsibility for, for, their, for their part in handing those issues to him. But, you know, that's the only way forward for, for the Democrats or for the left or for left-wing people or for liberals even. All right? So that, that's how Americans resist Trump. In my opinion. Yeah. And listen, this is, there's, no, there's no... It's not by saying, oh... You know, you know, student. Uh, sorry, you know, stooge for Putin, Manchurian candidate. He's a pervert. I mean, listen. I know people, people who are friends. You know, people who I think of as left wing people saying this was a coup, and what they're basically saying is we need the CIA to come and and sort this out. 
All right, and liberals hate the masses so much they might be comfortable with the CIA taking care of business as opposed to a mass popular revolt and an uprising. Now we know that Trump is like the most unpopular political candidate president ever. Mm. We absolutely know that. We know that he's got no mandate because he lost the popular vote by two plus million votes. So we don't need this sexy spy story. We don't need it. We need good old fashioned <laughs> politics and people will be out there in the streets resisting. But it's like, you know, resisting on behalf of what? Let's just get our message right, you know? And, and uh, look, you know, the Democrats may be far too compromised to do that. But I think, I think what's going to happen is you will see the Dems roll over. Um, and, uh, and then people will be out on their own, left to themselves. And then I guess, you know, then, then, then we cut that cord to the Democrats. But, yeah. Yeah, because I, I just wonder where it, where it ends, because it's just... You know, it's, it kind of snowballs this this mm -hmm. conspiracy about Putin and 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 all of that. It just it ends of, with yeah. giving power to the CIA and NATO. And I mean, here's the other crazy thing: is the so you know that the the company I have to credit Yasha Levine for this. The company that's doing the metadata analysis or whatever for the hacks of the DNC and the Podesta emails is this group called CrowdStrike, which is yeah. a privatized full of ex-spooks um, and you know it turns out they didn't actually even share their servers and hard drives with the FBI they actually you know uh, the FBI is saying they resisted the actual procedure because I mean look they were so keen to have this Russia story mm. um, now the guy who's <coughs> the founder of CrowdStrike is a Russian expat who is on the Atlantic Council which is actually something that Michael Weiss uh, who's sorry for folks he's a journalist for the Daily Beast who is a so-called Russia expert who doesn't speak Russian and has never met uh, a Wahhabist fighting the Russians and Assad that he doesn't love as a freedom fighter. I mean, he's, he's a virulent, virulent mm -hmm. anti-Russian who, again, comically predicted that you know Russia's little uh, escapade in Syria, whatever you may think of it, was going to be an absolute disastrous bungle, you know, Afghanistan all over again. Look, he's just... So there's a geopolitical angle to this whole story and mm. it's kind of it's it's deep and uh it's hard to kind of parse but um you know that's the kind of background to this whole thing i forgot why i even went to what was the <laughs> point there but anyway. I, can't, I, I can't remember but the, i mean the blame putin for my knee losing my train of thought yeah <laughs> i i do get interested by the you know the whole at, at atlantic council mm -hmm. and um you know often criticisms of all those other think tanks that's Council right. on Foreign Relations. And I'm going to say this really quickly. There was a headline in New York Times about, or Washington Post today saying, you know, think tanks will never be the same again, you know, in an era of Trump because none of these people are going to get jobs. And I'm like, I, it's hard for me to not actually cheer that, mm. you know, because the think tank world is so rotten well, to the core. They're not trusted anymore, are they? They're well, I mean, they were always geopolitical hacks, but it's just so naked. And we hate these people so much, mm. you know. Uh, but anyway. Please continue with your, uh, your your question about the think tank folks. Um, well, no, I was, I was just wondering if it's because, you know, there's civil society around the world that gets funded by these kind of organizations. That's right. Especially the Soros Foundation, which is which is the target of a lot of conspiracy theories as well. I just That's wonder, right. wonder whether, whether the truth is there and if it undermines the credibility of an organization if they accept, you know, m money from people like the Soros Foundation because this is important there's you know there's these civil society entities around the world you know journalism yep. and places where 
that industry is struggling because of, right. of government oppression or yep you know finance or whatever yeah. it's, it, this is this is tough because uh soros and then the right wing kind of brookings institute american enterprise institute cato institute those are kind of those are two different beasts. I would say that, uh, well, all right, so I forget who the Supreme Court, conservative Supreme Court justice was who wrote some uh, paper, policy paper in the 70s, basically saying we need to create these things in order to kind of maintain our hegemony as a kind of, you know, uh, a ruling class and, and all the rest of it. So that's, I mean, that's the origins of the right-wing think tank, and we know about the Koch brothers, and we know that mm. their whole basis is to kind of provide an intellectual veneer to the most rapacious forms of capitalism. So we know about that. The Soros thing is a little bit different. Um, I have, so Soros, while those things objectively do some good work, I mean, I'm obviously right now living in a place where NGOs play an incredibly important role in developing and cultivating Fiji. civil society, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> but at the same time, they just kind of parachute politics in. Mm. And they also create this kind of class of, a kind of strata of NGO that's really kind of inorganic yeah. And and look, the thing about, and it's kind of a chicken and egg argument, because what happened with uh, neoliberalism and structural adjustment programs in the 70s and 80s, oh, guys, sorry to get no, no, into right. the weeds, but basically, uh, you know, the states were destroyed, right? Mm. So straight, so uh, developing countries that had built up, you know, developed their economies much like, you know, New Zealand or America with protection and import substitution and developmentalist policies. In the 70s and 80s and 90s, World Bank basically said, you just, you know, all, dismantle all that, free market will take care of everything. And so now people have very limited mechanisms by which to do some of those things, you know, public broadcasting or, but anything else, kind of like, you know, development and support. So the NGOs fill that role. Yeah. Now, some of it's good, some of it's terrible. But all of it is a symptom of a kind of neoliberal global hegemony of which George Soros um, is a guy. Now, you can say that and just be kind of objective about it, or you can say it and be Alex Jonesy about it. Mm. Like, you know, there's this kind of like globalist conspiracy and this, you know, kind of arch whatever. And I mean, it's not a kind of, you know, George Soros isn't doing it because he's a megalomaniac and he just wants to control everything around the world. I don't know. Maybe he does, but he's doing it because you know, he's a capitalist, and yeah. that's kind of what they do. So yeah, that's an interesting point, because it seems like every every valid argument, and you mentioned before that I often talk about, um, you know, Putin's evil. Um, he's a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah, but... Um, <laughs> so is Erdogan. So exactly. Is, you know, so but, is the But that's the, thing, that, that's the thing, criticizing Putin shouldn't automatically get the response oh, right. that Erdogan's... You know, oh, okay. Am I it, doing a what about something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm just saying. But it just—it it seems like every valid argument has this taint. Oh, okay. Every single thing. We spend too much time online, eh? And yeah, and, and I do. I think it's the—I think it's the the internet, the 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 toxicness of it. It's, it's well, you know, uh, or are, is the online becoming the circular firing squad of kind of Maoism, you know, and cultural Marxism? I don't know. Uh, my thing about Putin, I only say that because, look, man, the Putin discourse is everywhere. So I feel like I have to push back on Putin. Yeah. Because that is the kind of most predominant, like, uh, and nobody's talking about Erdogan, who's, a, you know, an American yeah, see, ally or whatever. See, but I Putin's disagree. Did, you know, Erdogan, you know, and I, I guess in the publications that I read that, I mean, some people would claim as being the foreign policy elite, you know, they're... they're, they're dissemination of their propaganda or whatever you know mm -hmm. Erdogan's, Erdogan's a big you know bit play he's a big 
character in in this in this whole. You know, I only compare Putin and Erdogan because they're quite similar in terms of they, uh, what they've set up for their country and and how uh, you know just as quasi populist, oligarchic, mm. quasi fascist. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think I think there's a case that uh, Erdogan is more fascist than uh, Putin in the sense that you know he's got more kind of forces on the street for for lack of a better kind of way of describing it, but. Anyway, that's, that's interesting. It's a it's a topic for another day. But that's we, right. Let's get Will Harris up in here. <laughs> we can talk about Erdogan <laughs> yeah. and Syria. Yeah. I, yeah, 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 yeah. And let's not talk about Syria. I've never seen anything quite divide left wing people online like Syria. Mm. And my thing about Syria is, do we have to have to have to have a position on Syria? Exactly. You know what I mean? Like it's bad. It's Can't really it just be bad. Horrible? It's yeah. horrible, and there are very. We always, as leftists, we want to have international solidarity and, and mm. have our people. And aside from the YPGJ, you know, <laughs> there's no our people there. And our people, YPGJ, have had to get U.S. air support. Now, and a lot of leftists would be like, oh, they're tainted, they're tools of imperial. I don't, uh, don't want to. So. Oh, my God. I just, let's. Yeah, see. So, yeah. Sorry for bringing it up, George. No, no. I think I think with, with people trying to find a side on these conflicts is, is another thing of. of well, the all right. Internet. Let's bring it back to the internet. So, what we actually. Uh, I think we, we spend far too much. I mean, the notion that internet activity is any form of activity, mm. uh, political activity. Um, is obviously far overblown. Read Jody Dean. There <laughs> you go. That's yeah. Uh, uh, Jody's phenomenal. I mean, she talks about techno fetishism. Where, but also, you know, for the Occupy crowd, and I, I have to be a bit harsh here for the kind of Lumio crowd. Uh, if you know Lumio, they did a TED talk. They've got this conferencing app. People assume that the conversation, and the platform, and the technology will produce. Mm. The politics and the ideology, yeah, and that's not how that works. Uh, it's flawed. So we, so we have these roundabout kind of you know nonstop, you know, uh, things that then kind of feed into algorithms and Facebook and communicative capitalism, and you know, mm. uh, and so yeah, I think public spaces is really important. I mean, again, to quote, quote Matt Chrisman, there is no public space. You know, the public square has overgrown with weeds, and there's dogs in there defecating and doing. You know, yeah. like that's. Like that's actually, physically, there is no public yeah, space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the thing to kind of rethink and reclaim. And imagine, you know, resisting Trump with something like an Occupy mobilization, but with a 10-point plan, for God's sake. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that Was it that hard? Could we have had a 10-point or a 20-point plan? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, been great to talk to you. Thanks, Indeed, my man. Thanks for coming in. Hey, keep up the good work, buddy. Cheers, cheers. Uh, it's 422. You're on Radio 191 FM, the Tuesday Nooner with me, George Elliott. I'll be back uh, next week on Tuesday, 10, uh, sorry, 12 till 2 uh, every Tuesday. Peace. Read Jody Dean. <laughs>